Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the Parshat Re'eh, and we're going to look at chapter 15 of Re'eh this morning. So who would like to read? Every seventh year you shall practice remission of debts. This shall be the nature of the remission. Every creditor shall remit the due that he claims from his fellow. He shall not dun his fellow or kinsman, for the remission uh, proclaimed is of the Lord. You may dun the foreigner, but you must remit whatever is due you from your kinsman. Go on. There shall be no needy among you, since the Lord your God will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a hereditary portion. If only you heed the Lord your God and take care to keep all his instructions that I enjoin upon you this day. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you. You will extend loans to many nations, but require none yourself. You will dominate many nations, but they will not dominate you. If, however, there is a needy person among you, one of your kinsmen in any of your settlements in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not harden your heart and shut your hand against your needy kinsmen. Rather, you must open your hand and lend him sufficient for whatever he needs. Beware lest you harbor the base thought, the seventh year of the year of remission is approaching, so that you are mean to your needy kinsman and give him nothing. He will cry out to the Lord against you and you will incur guilt. Give to him readily and have no regrets when you do so, for in return the Lord your God will bless you in all your efforts and in all your undertakings. For they will never cease to be needy ones in your land, which is why I command you, open your hand to the poor and needy kinsmen in your land. Okay. <clears throat> we are warned here in Parshat A about what can happen in a system where there's going to be a remittance of all debt every seven years. So what's the danger Torah is describing? If we're going to forgive all debt every seven years and reset everything, right, and level the playing field, what's the danger in that system that this is talking about? Year six. Year six. (laughs) Exactly. What's the problem in year six? Well, you're going to forgive all debts anyway, so why bother? So why bother what? Giving. Aha. Well, you're not going to get it back. (laughs) So why bother helping someone if you know that all debts are going to be forgiven, and so you're not going to get your money back. There's there's no incentive there. So Torah understands that that's a possible consequence. Later, there's a whole huge rabbinic thing about about this. Prus bowl, it becomes this whole legal um, construction that the rabbis come up with to get right to get around some of this kind of stuff. But biblically, this was a real concern. If this is your economic system, there's a real concern in year six that people are going to be really struggling and nobody's going to be willing to help them. But it cautions you then and says, don't harden your heart. Just because of that, you still have to give. The, the gift is what's important, not the getting back. hundred percent. Torah also knows it's dealing with human beings, (laughs) right? So, of course, that's what we should do. And so what is Torah all about? Torah is all about legislating what we should do because we can't be left wondering or to do that on our own, right? Because it has to be legislated. It's not optional. This is, right, the divine's call to compassion and justice and 
and fairness and uh, a sense of economic you know possibility and equity. So that um, so that is legislated here. You you can't be greedy. That's the law, <laughs> right? So and of course you can't legislate feelings. But we know Torah often legislates what we think of as feelings, right? Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elohecha. You shall love Adonai your God, right? You shall not hate your kinsman in your heart, right? That's an, it's legislating behavior. You will you will behave as if you don't hate David in your heart. W- whatever you feel, you have to act as if you love your neighbor as yourself, right? It says kinsman, family. It doesn't say. Yeah, that was interesting. So, but but we have to be clear what it's talking about, um, right? So it, it is talking about the remission of debts, and it's among Israelites. So it's among citizens. It's not for foreigners, correct? There's a distinction. There's 100. a seeming contradiction here. Okay, so we're, we're going there. We're, go, we're totally okay. going there uh, in just a second. Um, absolutely, Bert. Uh, and this was common. This was common, just so you know, in the, in the ancient world, this was commonly what was done. Like we see it in Acadia and with the Amorites in Babylon that there are places where some you know, it's remitted for some but not for everybody. So it's attested in the other places in the ancient world. We, we don't have to like it but it's a common system that citizens had certain advantages well, I'm using that word, it's a, obviously a modern term but if we can think, think in terms of something like citizen uh, then there were certain benefits to that. There were certain things that you had as a right that other people who are sojourning don't have, right? Migrant workers. You know, there are some things they don't have as rights that American citizens have. So it's a similar, similar thing. And it should distress us equally about our time, right? As it does about this text, <laughs> that there's a difference about how people are treated. <laughs> Distresses. Some of us in this country, uh, I was a little terrified by hearing a rally where one of the presidential candidates uh, talked about deporting people, and there was huge cheering, huge cheering. No. He shall not be named. So it, that was that was very distressing, right? To hear that there's also a lot of support and excitement around their taking our stuff. Our opportunities, our benefits, our whatever. That's exactly why we keep taking this out of the ark <laughs> and reading it. Right? Unfortunately, this is going to be applicable. My guess is for us forever. Exactly right. Carol, did you want to say something? No, no, I, I, I was. You got it. <laughs> we covered it. Okay. We're going to go to what Bert is has noticed. Verse four says what says. Ephes, kilo yebecha evyon, right? There will be no evyon. There'll be no needy among you because God's going to bless you, right? This is Moshe's speech, remember? This is Moses' final speech to the people before they cross over. And so they've been told over and over, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed. It's going to be fine. God's on your side. It's all going to be good. This is going to be terrific. And so there's not going to be any needy among you because it's going to be so great. And God's going to bless you. And it's all going to be fruitful. And everything's great. Except it's not. right? And where do we see that? At 11, after we go through all this stuff about how we're supposed to be generous and not harden our hearts and not close our hands, verse 11 says, For there will never cease to be evyon mikarev haaretz. 
right, in the midst of the land, which is why I'm commanding you to open your hand to the poor and the needy kinsmen in your land. So what, what do we do with that? I think what we do with that is we take a look from the macro to the micro that the nation of Israel will always have abundance because God is on our side because God chose. And among, that's the macro, but the micro is that she might need a loan, she might not have a good crop, her cow or milk cow may have dropped dead. God forbid. God forbid. And, but, the, but we, the nation, will be abundant, but there may be individuals that may have need. Okay, so overall, you will be, you will be successful, and there will be abundance. But some of y'all... Sarah might struggle, except Sarah, right? There's lots of abundance, but Sarah needs a new cow. Mm-hmm. It's also, it's all relevant. All so, relevant? It's all relevant, so how the scale slides based on the need factor, right? So if everyone has a certain amount and there's those that have less, they're considerably, they're considered needy, even if in another setting they would have enough. Ah, so, so there's always that. So Daniel goes to the rabbinic interpretation. That it's saying, <laughs> right? The rabbinic interpretation is, you know, that, that needy is defined by what someone either used to have and lost. Um, you're, there, there's a story about uh, Hillel, Rabbi Hillel, who was famously poor, and uh, and there was a, a very rich person who had lost everything and used to have a horse and someone to run calling before him. You know, here comes Mr. <laughs> Goldberg, the important, right? And um, and when he lost all that, he only had a horse, and so Rabbi Hillel used to run before him, you know, saying, here comes Mr. Goldberg, the important, because Hillel understood that that was tzedakah, that that was charity, because Robert doesn't agree so much, but <laughs> that that's what he had been used to, and that that's what his particular need was, and that he had a need, that he that there was something he didn't have that that he had been so accustomed to, that he was tied into it in a way that his lack of it was made him suffer. And so Rabbi Hillel was there to alleviate the suffering um, that goes with lack. Robert, do you have something you want to say about that? No? no? no I, I'm not sure. I'm not so sure it's a contradiction. Okay. Because a, a different reading, if we look at verse 5, which is actually a continuation of verse 4, it really says, There should be no needly, needy among you if you only heed the Lord your God. Right. So it's conditional. And then later, when he says, uh, they will never cease to be need- the needy among you, the implication is that people the, people, the people will not heed. Or either those people don't right. heed, or y'all, all y'all, don't heed, right. and therefore, right? So this is Sifre's understanding. Sifre mm-hmm. understands that, that one is, if, that it's conditional. There will be no needy among you if you follow the word of Adonai or God. Then you'll be blessed and everything's going to be fine. If you don't, there will never cease to be needy among you that you're going to have to take care of. Right? So that is a very distressing theology. It is certainly Deuteronomic. Right? It's right in line with everything we know from the Deuteronomist. For us, that's not going to sit very well. Needy. It's um, community building to have 
the rest of the community who's not so needy to help out those who are. Mm -hmm. And if everybody keeps God according to this, there won't be a problem. We don't have to think about things like that. So let me understand what you're saying. So you're saying if, if we follow God's ways, then everyone's going to take care of everyone else. It doesn't mean that there aren't needy. It means that we're going to take care of that because we're following God's ways. And so we don't have to worry about it. But if, I thought about it as just the opposite, actually. Okay, so, sorry. So tell me. No, if, if we don't keep God's ways will, what, right. to the letter, then there will always be needy in the, in the larger group. And it would then be incumbent upon the rest of us to help take us, putting myself in uh, us to help those who are in need. Right. A way of, of, of community building or enriching our community. Right. So what I was pointing, all I'm wanting to point to is but for some, that could be a very troubling theology. No, Follow my ways, or they're going to be, I'm going to cause people to have poverty, right? So, so right, so it's divine extortion, right? Which is very Deuteronomic, right? That We see that a lot in Deuteronomy. And so that's, I just wanted to lift up that, that part could be troubling. I, as a Reconstructionist, completely agree that we could read this still aspirationally to say if we follow the ways of holiness of compassion and justice and goodness and forgiveness and compassion if we follow those ways if we follow godly ways we will create a society in which there aren't any needy because we will have taken care of such a great welfare system you know and such a great education and such a great whatever that that they're not Suffering, but right? I the way. Your point was more than that. I thought your point was that if we all do follow and we're all taken care of, there is no community building involved in taking care of those who are needy. So that there's a value in in having needy, so that the community can we'll come together and can learn to support them. others. So that's. Not a value appreciated by the needy. No. <laughs> so, right to Bert's point, what does that do for the needy? What is that's great for us that so we can feel good about building our community, and you know, but like, how does that impact a child who's not getting nutrition they need because, right, they're they're food insecure? David. Amy, first of all, I think Bert should form a committee to raise money to buy Sarah Cow. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. <laughs> we'll take care of Sarah's, we'll take care of Sarah's cow. Sarah is needy because she didn't follow God's. So this, Sheldon has just lifted up the danger, right, inherent in this kind of absolutist theology. She's poor because clearly she didn't follow the ways of Adonai, and so her family's not blessed. I'm just taking a Trumpian view. The Deuteronomist understands there is a bell-shaped curve in life. There will always be needy among us. That's the nature of life. That's the nature of the community we're in. But it's incumbent on us as a people with a higher calling to take care of the needy as opposed to casting them out. And the other point was about this big charity to the stranger. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me because from a community viewpoint, the stranger doesn't pay taxes, the stranger doesn't participate in costs 
of keeping a community whole. The stranger isn't going to help Sarah get a milk cow. He's going to come in and go out. You know. So I mean, this is right. not something that doesn't have a lot of sense in saying if I'm going to build a community, these are the things I need to consider. Right. And I think that's exactly it. That you know, there's a different stake someone has who's a participant in building and sharing, like you said, the cost of that community. Mm -hmm. And we're told you shall <coughs> protect the widow and the orphan mm -hmm. and the stranger in your midst. For you were strangers in the land. We're told 36 times to love the stranger. 36 times. That is more than anything else we hear in Torah. Um, more times than loving God. More times probably wow. I would have to count, but... What? Maybe even more times than loving God, right? That and so, loving the stranger like is because that's not our tendency, right? You know, that's that's not where we tend to go. That's giving the deaths of the stranger, though, isn't a question of whether we love the stranger. It's a recognition of who shares what obligations in a community. I think I think that's absolutely true. Uh, to the to the bell shaped curve thing. Yes, hundred percent. The Deuteronomist and Torah in general is realistic. But understands yeah. the world as it is, and then it's aspirational, talking about how the world should be. But what we're lifting up is that verse 4 says there will be no needy among you, right? So that, yes, 11 makes perfect sense, because that's the way reality is. We're lifting up that verse 4 seems to be a direct contradiction, and that's, that's what we're working with exploring. Paula? To put a very practical spin on it, putting in a in a club for Jewish free loan, which is in Los Angeles, Sova, um, and for other services of Jewish family service, Jewish vocational service, all of these are um, services that are accessible and applicable and now and in, in the Jewish community. Thank you, Paula, for that advertisement, for opportunities for us to fulfill the mitzvot of this parsha. Thank you, exactly. I just want to say the, um, the fact that that line that there always will be needy, mm -hmm. it, it feels like it's a universal truth that was included in here, and it makes it very rational and logical, because that is the truth. There will always be needy. You know, you can have a family and you can have a child, or you can be the richest family and you can have a child born issues, down, all kinds of things like that. Right. So I, I feel like I, I want to read that. I want to hear that reality. Right. That wouldn't verse 4 be a little bit of a condemnation that if you don't believe in God, you are condemned to be needy, and therefore why should I help you as part of the so that was what Sheldon lifted up. That's the danger, right? That's where people can go. I and they, the aspiration makes sense. Even in so the aspiration might be that it's conditional, that the reality is conditional. If we live into holiness, we will create a society where there aren't needy people. If, if the fact is there are. Because guess what we're not doing? But in, in verse five, right, right, well, guess what we're not doing, right? We're... We pollute the rivers and then wonder, right, that children are sick downstream, right? So it's... In verse 5... It's a speeding ticket because you're not going to speed. It's telling you ahead of time you're not going to do something, even though it, it already implies. So therefore, if you don't heed, these things will happen. It's saying, there won't be any need among you because, of course, you'll do everything right. 
it's the same as saying like, oh, you're going to get an A because you're going to study six hours. And I look at my parent and I think, I'm going to study for two hours. <laughs> I know conditionally there's a good chance I'm not going to get what they say is going to happen. And they're both here. Right. <laughs> in, in verse 5, the you, which says, if only you heed the Lord your God. Mm -hmm. Isn't that plural? Rock im shamoa tishma. No. But then singular. Elohecha, singular, your God. So this is singular. Yes. So it's incumbent on each of us to make is those choices. Is in the same seventh year? Is that calendar? Mm -hmm. And what year are we in now? Well, you can check the uh, Google. You can check the Google, and I'm sure it knows. But this only held while we were sovereign in the land of Israel. And we haven't been sovereign. We had not been sovereign for 2,000 years. So this stopped being possible once we weren't anymore sovereign in the land of Israel. There are some scholars who believe this never happened, that all of this is aspirational. But in fact, there, there's no way it could have <coughs> actually worked. Yeah, that this is what should be, and it's a description of what should be, but that it never really, ha never really happened. Would we be considered sovereign in Israel now? We are, and so some authorities, some rabbinic authorities, take very seriously like letting the land rest. But now it's different crops on a different cycle because uh -huh. you. You don't want to stop all the agriculture, and you can't because rabbinic law doesn't hold all over the land of Israel. Um, but that Shemitah, that the release of, of the land, it needs that we need to take that seriously because we are sovereign now mm -hmm. in the land of Israel. And so that's why I think if you go to yeah. the Google, you can um, find out what year. There's a note, by the way. 2015. Just Here you go. So our intern just looked it up. 2015 was. Was the year. We missed it. We missed it. <laughs> Darn. It does, it does say here, there's, there's, a, there's, a, note, there's a, note, a footnote in, in the Hertz. It says, because the remission is for the benefit of the poor, it probably does not cover all types of debts. According to later Jewish law, unpaid wages, billed owed to shopkeepers for merchandise, and certain types of secured loans are not canceled. So it's not everything. So there are exceptions. Yeah. And, and I want to be clear, what I was talking about, Yovel and Shemitah is different from the remittance of debts. Right. So I have to say that this year I let my vegetable garden, last year I let it go quietly. So you This year I put in all new dirt and grew, and I had the best crop I've ever had. And you followed the Shemitah here. Yeah. And you, you did it right in Shemitah. You did. Look at that, Judith. Look at that. You knew in your heart. See what happens when you follow the ways of the Holy One? You get more tomatoes. Just saying. <laughs> right? I still have some tomato sauce from your tomatoes in my fridge. Uh, so we're going to look a little bit at Rabbi uh, Leo Mustin, who is quoting. Rabbi Jill Jacobs of Trua, the rabbinic call for human rights, who points to the word in our text that uh, we're supposed to be generous, right? And who are we supposed to be gen Genesis? <laughs> rabbinic slip. Um, who are we supposed to be generous with? Achicha. What's Achicha? Only the Jews. Your brother, right? Where do we see achicha? We get a lot of this business in Torah, yeah? 
What are some of the resonances we have with Achicha, your brother? Thank you. And what happens there? One kills the other. And God says to Cain, where's your brother? And what's Cain's answer? Hashomer. Right? Am I my keeper? Am I my keeper's brother? Am I my brother's keeper? Uh, it's hard to come back from vacation. Right? Um, am I my brother's keeper? And there's one beautiful midrash that says the rest of the Torah is an answer to that question. Am I my brother's keeper? Right. So from the very beginning, achicha is, there is no guarantee about how we treat achicha. Even if it's achicha, forget the stranger. Like even our brother we don't and of course it's always talking to males right so um so think of your sister or if you're, whatever but even the one that's kind of closest to you we we there's no guarantees we're told so achicha is about the one closest to you knowing that it's not that you're showing favoritism it's that that is what is supposed to be the relationship of all y'all to each other says torah that you are you're related to one another and forget biology, right? You're, you're brothers, you're sisters, and you're supposed to care about each other that way. Even if you don't feel it, you're supposed to take care of each other like a sibling that you don't even necessarily like, but that you'd never let go hungry, that you'd never let walk around without enough clothing or shelter. So that's what Rabbi Jacobs is lifting up at the bottom of your page that says Parshat Re'eh with a lot of English, Yeah. The bottom paragraph, the overarching Jewish attitude to the poor is best summed up by a single word of the biblical text, achicha, your brother. With this word, the Torah insists on the dignity of the poor and it commands us to resist any temptation to view the poor as somehow different from ourselves, right? A real issue in our country um, right now. By telling us that the poor is our sibling, the Torah reminds us that like us, a poor person is made in the image of God and should be treated as such. It also prevents us from separating ourselves from him or her, from seeing ourselves as somehow inherently different from the poor, and reminds us of our duties uh, towards the poor. And she's saying, but I can't help thinking that this year it's more important than ever to hear its message loud and clear. And I would say that to us as people facing a presidential election. Not only do we live in times of great austerity and welfare cuts threatening those who are the neediest among us, but we can also observe a growingly cruel rhetoric about the claimants of welfare benefits. Right? So it's beyond what you have to do for them, the safety net, and who's caught in that safety net. It is about your attitude towards them as well. Do not think for one moment you are fundamentally any different than they are. You were strangers in the land of Egypt. You were slaves. You were nothing. You were below poor. You were property. Who were you ever to turn and otherize someone who now has less than you do? And I think it's a very important corrective for our time that is about the discourse as much as it is about action. And what we allow in terms of the characterization of the poor or the stranger among us. So the French philosopher, that last paragraph, Emmanuel Levinas, taught that we have an infinite responsibility for the other. And I love it that it's a capital O, right? Um, 
We can do so by giving to the poor, as Paula said, by donating resources of our time to food banks and drop-ins, by informing ourselves of the facts before reaching conclusions about the rights and wrongs of benefit cuts, and by making our voices heard in public. In public, we have to be ready and willing. And this is going to be a high holiday sermon. You're getting a preview.、Um, we have to be willing to risk being unpopular in a room. We have to to stand publicly. For what we believe needs to be happening in our country right now, and we have to risk even the vitriol that's coming now with the heated level of of debate and argument, and and it's not easy, and it's not comfortable, and if if we don't do that, we are abdicating our responsibility as citizens of a democratic society and as citizens of the richest country in the history of the world, and I think. It's a beautiful tie-in that Rabbi Jacobs finds to this week's parsha to say, "Let us not for one second think that it's not our responsibilities to make our voices heard、uh, in public, and that parsha teaches that together we'll make a difference in this world when each of us takes action." You go to your next, go to your next set of sheets, and it is the text I'm studying with my Chavruta partner each week from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. And Rabbi Pamela Wax, who's our teacher this year,、um, also lifts up these verses that we just looked at. Right? If there's a needy person among you, and look what she is going to highlight there in the bold: Do not harden your heart nor shut your hand, right, against your kinsman. Rather, patoach tiftach. You shall surely open your hand and give them sufficient, or lend them, in this case,、um, sufficient for whatever they lack. Here's another bold: Beware. Lest you harbor, and in Hebrew we get this interesting term that I had to go look up in the etymological dictionary because I don't recognize this word.、Um, bliyal, lest there be bliyal bilvavecha in your heart. And then we get what that looks like, right? The seventh year is coming. I don't want to give,、uh, and so you have to give readily. Bliyal. So there shouldn't. You're gonna give so that there shouldn't be bliyal in your heart. Well. Why are we worried about bliyal in our heart, right? Bliyal. All right. So, looking it up, it is there are two possibilities. One is that it comes from a combination of bli and yal. The other is that it's a combination of bli and ola or ala. To go up, yeah.、Mm-hmm. All right. So what's bli? Without. So without, and I had to look up yal because I didn't know that one either. But you use it all the time. What? Yal. <laughs> <laughs> the prize goes to Judith this morning. Judith Ubik. All right. Yal, a little different than yal, yal, <laughs> which means worth. So, if it's a combination, a compound of bli yal, it would mean what? Worthlessness. So that's an interesting thing. You're going to be generous and give so that you don't have 
worthlessness in your heart. By not giving, you're taking everything away from yourself. You're worthless. Very interesting. So if you don't give, you are in fact making yourself less valuable. You become of less worth. That you become worthless because you give up. I'm going to now take it further. You're giving up your agency to do something positive, which then diminishes my worth. And it surely doesn't mean material worth, right? Because by giving, I'm actually lessening the balance in my bank account. So it, it has to mean if I give, if I'm giving money away and I get more worth, it obviously can't mean money, although it might mean there's abundance because I'm doing that. But, but it seems to mean something about intrinsically, I'm... The Torah is not about accumulating wealth. Correct. It's about, it's about warning about the, what accumulation of wealth can do. So this is like a spiritual Lashon Hara, the evil tongue. This is the evil inside that's creating another problem. Nice. So it's greed. Greed. Right? One kind or another. Greed and hardening, a right? Problem. Meaning a, uh, there isn't a great English way to talk about it, but a non-compassion, mm-hmm. right? Whatever that, whatever that is. What's the opposite of empathy? Um, indifference? Maybe a focus on self and indifferent to the suffering and an active denial of what I could do to alleviate that. And if I don't do what I can do, I I carry worthlessness in my heart. Sarah? It seems like the Torah takes the longest view of many generations and whereas in one generation, I may be wealthy and you may be poor, in many generations, all kinds of crap can happen. <laughs> and we know this is life, that things go up, they go down, there's illness, there's birth defects, there's all kinds of stuff. And that our turn whatever we're in right now may not be the way it always is. Mm-hmm. That's called wisdom. That, I was going to say spoken like someone who's lived a long and insightful life. So, so this was written for kinsmen to hear about themselves, but since they're no longer in Israel, that Israel is no longer there, when this is heard, when this is read, what did the rabbis, what did the people in the diaspora think about dealing with their kinsmen? Because now they're all over the place. and So, I mean, I, obviously we would help anyone who's in need, but... So what do you think? What, does the Torah th- what do you think, think the rabbis did with that? Well, I think uh, the idea of kinsmen <coughs> has evolved and reconstructed, so to mean everybody. Humans. N- well, humans. So now, I think for part of the segment of the Jewish community, I would agree. Um, but all the, all the organizations that Paula quoted, that's what the rabbis did with it. Hebrew Free Loan Society, right? They, that, that, call Yisrael arivim zebazeh, that we are responsible, each member of the Jewish people, for each other. And it was to help one another first. But Silva helps everybody. I understand that, but that's, that's new. That's, that's contemporary, because once upon a time, Sarah's cow 
was the most important thing to replace before you replaced a Gentile neighbor's cow. Yeah. And, and that was how we supported each other as a community. I, I think also that this plays out differently in the United States. 100%. Than in other Jewish diaspora populations, any other place. But it's new. And it's new. And how, and if, because the Jewish population now is changing and an, and an evolving state in the United States, and maybe not an ancestral population, but a newly evolving identity population. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's contemporary because not all that long ago, Jews depended on other Jews because they could not depend on, right? I mean, they were, that was how we survived, right? And, and so the Hebrew Free Loan Society is not that long ago, right? And that's here, right? And, and so now, thank God, in many ways, we've been able to assimilate to a place where we can see everybody, right, as kinsmen, that we are now part of the fabric of this country to such an extent that that we can move past, right, the the need to say Jews first, but there's still a lot that I deal with even here about why aren't we doing more Jewish tikkun olam? Why aren't we doing more Jewish causes? Why are we doing this and cleaning up the beach and doing that and doing that and not doing helping Holocaust survivors? And right, so there's still there's still a and no one's saying exclusively, I don't mean that at all, but there's still a tension between Achicha and everybody else, right? That there's a tension between how much do I give outside of my kinsmen, if you want to call it that, and how much goes first to Jews. And, and it's, a, it's, it's an interesting question, and it continues to evolve, and I think We're Paul is right. about MOTs. Yeah, members of the tribe. Yeah, and it's it's still vital. It's what? still very. And, and there's ways we can be positively identified yes. with a people and not say, therefore, I don't have to do my it. people comes first, and I don't have to worry about anybody else. Taking a look at this from an anthropological, the worst thing that you could be, or the worst thing someone could accuse you of, is being in a society and not pulling your weight and not following your obligations to the entire society. As we take a look and bring this into the modern world, that is not considered a high value anymore. And so what do we do with this when the group consciousness is not that each individual must and is obligated and would be horrified if anyone knew that you did not pull your weight? Because going from the anthropological to the psychological, we go from um, giving to the needy to enable it. And so I wanted you to discuss the tension when we have a society where people are not horrified if they are not pulling their weight. And then what do we do? And so what's dangerous about that is you could say that about the needy. Well, that the Cal- they're not pulling their weight. Well, see, here's the Calvinists, as everybody knows, not, um, had the concept of the elite that rich people were blessed by God and poor people were cursed by God, so therefore don't give them anything or you're just prepared, you're uh, violating God's will um, kind of pen. But um, that's what I'm asking is 
in reality, if everyone's not doing his or her personal best to support the society, where is the line between giving and enabling? So Torah is not interested in the problem of enabling. It, it's, it, should we, should we as an evolving civilization, work by Kaplan, um, should we be invested with unintended consequences of enabling, or is it not our business? I, I think definitely we know now, right, that there's things we shouldn't do in terms of helping the poor because it doesn't help. Right, so that we've been taught, you don't give money to homeless people. Right, you give to organizations that you know that that actually help and intervene in, in positive ways, um, as one example. Right, so um, so I think 100% it's our obligation to be educated, right, about how can we truly be helpful and not just alleviate our either desire or need, you know, to feel like we're doing our part and, and giving tzedakah. And so I think, yes, we need to be educated philanthropists. And then that's not easy, right? That takes time and effort and, effort and research that we often don't want to do. Bert? I'd like to go back to the kinsman mm-hmm. uh, issue question mm-hmm. because it bothers me perhaps less than other people. Mm-hmm. We all have circles of concern. We all put some people before we put other people. Uh, our immediate families, you know, what are there's some hierarchies, you know, our immediate families, our extended families, whatever, our community, our friends, okay, and so we we don't all only deal with people five thousand miles away who are starving. We have whether we realize it or not, and I think it's appropriate because we can't do everything for everybody at once. We have levels, if you want, of who we help and how we help them. So I don't necessarily, I mean, as you say, this doesn't say don't do anything for anybody other than your kinsmen, but I don't have a problem with realizing that I'm going to help my wife and my children before I'm going to help a stranger. doesn't mean I'm not going to help a stranger, or that maybe I will help a Jew before I will help a nun, I, I don't know. But we do make those distinctions, and it's normal. And I don't think there's a conflict here with that. Yeah. So, so there, there doesn't need to necessarily be a conflict. I think. Well, I think that's right. It's not a question that you're prioritizing. It's a question of your attitude. Well, you have to prioritize. Do you care if you have about the person that is needed? So, so I want to. you may not help them. But I want to go back to the priority. I think, and I don't want to speak for you, Dana, mm-hmm. but part of what I heard Dana mm-hmm. talking about is: so, how do I prioritize? <laughs> right. And so, is it Jew first now? Or is it really, for, and I'm just going to say, like, for me, for, or is it children? Mm-hmm. Like, whether they're Jewish or not. Right. Is it the frail and the elderly? Mm-hmm. Like, who, those who are most vulnerable? I don't know. I don't have the answers to that. Mm-hmm. But I know that I struggle with what are my priorities. But, but we do have priorities. Yes. And there's and nothing that, wrong with that. And, I, and I, I don't think anyone would that suggest. Right. I don't think anyone would suggest we don't. I think the part of this that's a little... That, that we're wrestling with, or that you know that I that, that happened for me when Dana said that was right. So, which which part of my identity or my compassionate responses do I prioritize? And and it, once upon a time, Jew would have hundred percent not very long ago would have been at the top of that list. But, but as we evolve, as we've become part of the the real fabric of this society, and as we've assimilated. To what extent does that remain true? And to what extent are we comfortable with that remaining um, 
I'm not going to say the, but where is it in the, where are we comfortable with it being in the priority um, list? And what are we comfortable saying out loud about where it is in the priority list? And I think all those are important discomforts. I think it's an important thing that we continue to wrestle with. What are our priorities? And, and they change, obviously, over time and they evolve, you know, but it's an important question. It's a, it's a good thing if we're unsettled. About it a little bit. There's also a thinking that Jews are unneeded. I'm talking financially and uh, in that way. And Jews are not alcoholics. Jews are not drug abusers. Jews are not in need of financial assistance. But part of the question becomes, do I help a Jewish drug addict before a Gentile drug addict, right? It, so, so yes, there's denial about the need, but it's also... That tension, though, in the Jewish community of donors, of where do I, where do I, who do I help, where do I give my money to? Sure. Oh, well, the, but I think largely, I don't know. I think Jews are pretty good about getting it that they're Jews in need. I, I really do. I mean, maybe Gentiles think that. You know, I, I don't know. But I think Jews are pretty good about knowing there's Jewish causes and Jewish need, big time. Um, the money but, though is going in a much different way. You know, and, the generation. And so, well, exactly. And so that and that. So the real tension around resources is a huge discussion. Of course. Not, you know, not those Jews. Of course. Them, you know, in another country. No, of course. Um, maybe, Absolutely. Maybe history is going to direct it, and future history, because ultimately, like if you were a Jew in France right now, if there's a lot of the outward anti-Semitism, you might really need a lot of kinsmen around <laughs> the world to help and you. So exactly. Driven by. Mm-hmm. Circumstances, yeah. right? A hundred percent. All right, I, I, I want to go here. I want to go here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lead the Jews. I'm gonna lead the Jews. Because we always say Jewish leaders, right? You don't really lead the Jews. Okay, so. Um, Contradiction <coughs> Exactly, exactly. What's Allah? To go up. So how do you say that? What's, what's a verb? Arise. Ascend. Ascend. So now what does bliya'al mean? If it's without ascension. You're not raising Improvement. You what? You're not raising your heart. You're not raising your heart. The quality of your heart. The quality of your heart. Transcending ego. Transcending the ego. Transcending greed. So if you harden your heart and don't give, you, know, you want to give so that you don't have without ascension in your heart, <laughs> right? So it's, it's negative in, incentive to give, which I love. I love that thinking. I love that. So yes, you want to be generous. Yes, you want to be compassionate. Yes, you want to be, but you also don't want to be an SOB. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some, there's some positive movement and motivation that comes with what you don't want to be is somebody who in their heart blocks every, the possibility for rising. You don't want that in your heart. Like the blockage of, of lifting up, right? And 
I'm as motivated by that. Maybe this is just about me and maybe I've just said too much, but I'm very motivated by what I don't want to be as much as I am about who I do want to be. Right. And, and it's about, and depending on the topic or the situation, one might be more pervasive than the other, but I love that Torah has this like very negative incentivizing to say, give so that you don't wind up with this in your heart. Isn't there the implication here that the needy person asked for help? I don't because, know. Well, it says right after that, it says, so that you're ungenerous, blah, blah, blah. He will cry out to Adonai against you, and you will incur guilt. No. If he will cry out... No. no. I, don't, I don't think it's about asking. I think it's about th- that your brother's blood will cry out from the ground. Right, that... That the, the needy, if they are not helped and they are suffering, they will cry out. And then what's going to happen? If they cry out, you're in big trouble, right? What, how did the Israelites get freed from Egypt? Nothing happened until what? There was a tsa'aka, till they cried out. And God heard, took note, and then there was going to be trouble, right? Don't make me come down there, right? Um, and so that cry... That justified cry of anguish and anger, think Hagar. Think Hagar with Ishmael in the desert. She cries, remember that scene, in such agony. Um, The cry of someone who is vulnerable and cries out with that kind of pain that is justifiably horrible, um, that gets divine attention in Torah. So I think it's that cry that would mean the divine would be activated. And if you're guilty and the divine is activated, what happens? It's not good. <laughs> it's not good. All right, go to page two of, of your IJS packet. And so this is, all of this teaching about this word is courtesy of Rabbi Pamela Wax. So she says that this passage offers a clear example of what happens when our hearts and hands close into hard-heartedness and tight-fistedness, right? That um, that nagging, stingy, fearful voice, right, is what we wind up with, is, is what we um, amplify when we get stuck in greed. Page three, she gives you the history of this word, some other places, right, that where we see this word, bliya'al. Um, in the middle of the page, while we would most like to work our generosity muscles out of love, these shadow images of what we don't want to become can be their own kind of motivation, useful musar tools as a first step in building a generosity practice. So I'm just encouraging us to think about what are other places that rather than that, yes, doing it out of love, that practice of becoming more patient, you know, more whatever can is very motivating in some ways. And I would invite us to sometimes check out the shadow image, right? If I'm not that, if I'm not patient, what am I? And I don't want to be that, right? Snippy, snarky, right? You know, whatever it is that we are when we're not patient. What are we when we're not humble? Like, I don't want to be arrogant. But when when she talks about practice, is she talking about making a regular commitment? Yes. As opposed to just waiting until our hearts? Yes. So there, she has a whole section called spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so go to spiritual practices and look at number two. Another one of my favorites. Daniel and I were talking about 
this word from the Musar tradition, right? We've talked about Musar, spiritual qualities, right? Developing the inner life. And so Rabbi Sheila Peltz-Weinberg, my meditation teacher in my two years at IJS, uh, fabulous mindfulness meditation teacher, says, when I brought mindfulness with the perspective of heat lam dut, into the full experience of this moment, we're going to explore that word, after an um, often an opening occurs. No longer am I reflexively reacting to a situation as I have done a million times. I'm approaching it anew with fresh eyes and a sense of new possibilities. There is more freedom. Choices present themselves to me. When I approach things with an attitude, and this is a spiritual practice, Bert, to your question, that we are to practice hitlam dut. So somebody who understands a little bit about this gibberish up here called Hebrew, what do you see here? What's the shoresh? What's the root of this word? Laman, mam, dalid. Exactly. And you just said it, Rita Ephros, right? What is that shoresh? I, I just why, don't, why do I bother printing? I should just write script. I can't. I can't. I print like a three-year-old. Um, Laman, mam, dalid is what? To learn. What else is it? In another form. Hmm? A learning. To stand? Ahmad. Ahmad with an ayin. Lamad? Lilmod? Lilamed? If you start, right? Study, busy yourself with. Lilamed. Lilmod. It's the same three letters, you just vocalize them a little differently and you go from learning to teaching. And they are, in Hebrew, they are 100% the same shoresh. It's the same root. Of course it is. How can you, how can you have teaching and learning be anything other than the same root, just different activity that the verb is indicating? Every teacher knows that. Every teacher knows that as you teach, you are learning. As we learn, we teach, right? It, and you can't, you can't have one without the other. If you're learning, there's some teaching happening. And hopefully if you're teaching, there's some learning happening, right? Um, so, and it's one of the greatest values of our tradition is to study, right? This is the great <laughs> diaspora right contribution of Judaism right to the world is is our commitment to study as a sacred practice now what do you do when you call that hit lam dut this makes it a noun ut okay so that's now we're going to be dealing with a noun that's from a verb okay so this is a noun from a verb okay fine we got that we know what the shoresh the root of the verb is it's about learning, teaching. What is the heat part? To yourself. To yourself. It's reflexive. So those of you who know another romance language, like French, right, or something, that's the one I know, right, you have verbs that, like, je me bosse, that you, it's reflexive. Je m'appelle. So I call myself Amy, right? We say it's my name is Amy, but that's not what it is. It's a reflexive verb from to call. Right? I call myself Amy. That's how you say my name's Amy. I brush my, I, I, 
I, I don't know how you do it in English, but it, it's all a verb that you, that you do to yourself. All the Romance languages have it. Exactly. So this is the reflexive in Hebrew. Hebrew has it too. English is devoid of a lot of things, let's be honest. All right. So what does it mean? If it's reflexive based on Lamed Mandalid, what does this verb mean? I, I have a learning. I have a teaching. Teaching myself, learning myself. Teaching myself. I'm from the outside. It's from the inside. I'm learning myself. I'm teaching myself. How do you do that? By asking questions. By asking questions. This is reminding me of a story of my son who, when he was taking calculus, and he'd get, get a concept... He would just go around and start helping the people yeah. near him, and he said he boosted his own understanding of the concept by by making it clearer to others. And that's so. Our learning is always clearer when we teach. Right. If we teach what we're learning, right? Good spiritual practices. We teach what we most need to learn. Yeah. Right. Why do you think I teach meditation? Right. Like, we teach what we most need to be about, right? That's why I teach Dota, right? Because that's what we need, you know, because we know what we need. Because otherwise, you know. So, um, Is it about listening? So, so, so that's about teaching others and how we learn teaching others. If it's reflexive, how do I learn myself? How do I self-learn? How do I self-teach? It's curiosity. It's asking questions. If I walk into a situation, I can either just be there and just do my habitual thing, or I can employ hitlam dut as a position, as an attitude, as a value, and that means I now am trying to learn. Well, to do, if I walk into a situation like that, that changes things right away, doesn't it? It also implies doubting and questioning from every angle, I think. And which means what I can't be in that moment is so certain that I know that think of all the things that changes when we enter a conversation. If I go in thinking, I don't know, or I think I know, but I might be wrong. What changes in our interactions, right? Our heart changes in a big way. And it allows for what Sheila's talking about here. Rabbi Weinberg is talking about. It creates freedom, openness, space, so that I have choice about how I respond to what happens next. When we're like this, and I know it all, and I'm not going to like this, then what happens when you say something is that, you know, now it's like we just go right into habitual reactivity. Like we re- we're like this, and then we react. When we get there, then we react, right? But with this, if I can hear anything from a place of being open and curious and say, huh, that's not been my experience. Carol, talk, talk to me about how you understand that. That's a much, I'm not saying anything about I'm right or wrong. I'm not saying anything about you. I'm saying, tell me about that. That changes instantly all the possibilities in that conversation. Can I bring in the concept of uh, mindfulness of awareness? You become aware of what you don't know. And then you create a hekel, is that the correct word? A sacred space? Mm-hmm. To be able to be open to hear other ideas, but you're aware of what your preconceptions are, and you are become aware of that, and that allows you to take the step of becoming receptive to ideas that do not 
um, confirm what you already know. Mm-hmm. And, and how amazing would that be if that was the tenor of the public discourse, right, in, in our time and right now in our country? Um, I want to close with a, uh, based on that teaching of Rabbi Hillel, that everybody, you should give not equally. You shouldn't give equally. You should give, says part of our tradition, to exactly what the person needs. So this guy needed someone to run before his horse, calling, here comes Mr. Goldberg, the important, right? And, and so that's what Hillel did in order to give that man tzedakah and in order to alleviate his suffering. Somebody else, he would give a loaf of bread, right? So what he's saying, the, the purpose of that example is because it's preposterous. Robert knows that. Um, it's completely preposterous. But the point being, everybody's suffering is relative to their own history, their own experience, their own lives. And what this one needs, this one doesn't. And what this one needs, you're going to have to maybe hold with some curiosity what this person actually needs so that you have interest enough to find out how you can be most helpful. So that would mean listening. That would mean learning about do we give cash to people on the street or do we not? Right? That takes me having to come to KI and go to the sanctuary and hear a talk on homelessness and what I'm supposed to do. Well, that's an evening out of my life that I'm not watching TV. Right? The, so we have to be ready and willing to be curious enough to know how to give. So the Vilna Gaon, this beautiful teaching number three, is that don't close your hand against your kinsman. And when we close our hands, says the Vilna Gaon, all of our fingers look the same size. They all look the same. When we're closed and dismissive, it's all y'all. Right? Those immigrants. Those poor people. Those lazy people. Right? Everybody is easily dismissed when we're like this because it's all the same. Y'all are all the same. And it's, it's y'all always, right? It's not me, God forbid. So um, when we open our hands, we see, says this teaching, that each of our fingers is a different length. Each of them is a different shape a little bit. They're unique. And then when we have an attitude of openness and compassion and generosity, we see the uniqueness of each situation, of each conversation, of each person, of each heart, of each story, and we're able to then respond specifically, that we're able to give of ourselves specifically and uniquely to what that person needs from us right now. If we listen deeply with an open heart, with great holy curiosity, we're able to understand what exactly is needed from me right now with this person, in this conversation, in this transaction, in writing this check, right? What, what's needed from me right now that only I can give right now in this immediate situation? And that if we all treated all of our interactions that way, that teaches the Vilna Gaon would change the nature, the very nature of our society and would make it one reflective of holiness and goodness and righteousness and justice, which Torah tells us is the only kind of society we should be interested in building. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.